to Matthew, the 28th chapter. We're going to read from there in just a moment as you turn there. Let me take a moment or two to just express my appreciation for, first of all, the invitation to be here. Janet and I are glad that we can be here. I'm so I'm glad that she can be here with me. Appreciate Mike and Kelly opening up their home to us. It's good to be with old friends again. Uh, well, friends from a while back, they're not old. Uh, I'm old, they're not. But uh, it's good to see Jimmy and Mary Ann and the children uh, who are not going to be children much longer growing up. Uh, but, you know, especially at Jesse. I don't know if you know this. My grandfather was named Jesse, and my son is named Jesse. So that's a special name to me. Uh, but uh, it's good to have them. It's good to get to some of you we met several years ago. Some of you are new. It's good to renew old acquaintances. It's good to make new friends. I really that is something that's special. There is just something great about being in the kingdom of God, being in the family of God, getting to share times like this together, to enjoy good meals with people and good visits. But we're here to focus tonight on the study of God's Word. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, Jesus, giving what's come to be called the Great Commission, said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus says, go make disciples, I believe He explains how you make disciples. You baptize them. Baptism is that entering into discipleship. But discipleship also involves you do whatever He has commanded. You do all the things. Last night, I made mention of the fact that there are those who would claim to be disciples who are not true disciples of Jesus. They're not really following Him. They're not doing the things that are found in the Scripture. We're looking at what true disciples do. Last night we talked about the fact that true disciples, they are motivated not by carnal incentives. You don't have to keep them happy by social, recreational things. It is the cross of Jesus that draws them. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that keeps them going, that carries them to the end. Tonight, I want to talk about true disciples and the way the world sometimes sees them. Sometimes the world will see a true disciple of Jesus as being very narrow-minded. I mean, you may have had the, this experience. You tell somebody, well, you're a Christian, you're a member of the Church of Christ, and they go, oh yeah, I know about those folks. They are the most bigoted, narrow-minded, legalistic. They think they're the only ones going to heaven. And, you know, a very negative reaction. They think of something bad. Well, let me just say this. When it comes to eternal judgments, those are gods. I'm not empowered to make those. You know, I, I just I cannot do that. And I don't want to be a closed-minded person. I want to be the kind of person if somebody challenges me and says, You are wrong, that I would say to them, Okay, let's look at it. I want to be that kind of person, and yet I acknowledge that. In the minds of a lot of people, I would be somewhat narrow-minded to them. What I believe is 
You can't be a disciple of Jesus and not be that way again. I don't want to be a person who can't admit to being wrong. But here's where I, I, I really think when we start talking about a true disciple, one who really follows Jesus, he is going to be seen by the world as narrow-minded. Let me explain. Look at John the 14th chapter and verse 6. Some of these passages I'm going to put on the overhead. I don't often do that. But occasionally I do. In John the 14th chapter, verse 6, when Thomas has said, I don't know what you're talking about, the way you know we're supposed to know, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now just think about what he just said. There is no way, he says, that you can approach God except through me. Isn't that kind of narrow in its thinking? If you look at the third chapter of John, in essence you have the same thing, but you have the negative side of it. John 14 says, there's only one way to the Father. Look at John John 3 verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You believe in the Son, or you have the wrath of God? Look at Acts the fourth chapter. In verse 10, beginning. Peter and John have been arrested, and they're brought before the council. And the story, remember in the third chapter, Peter and John going into the temple, there's this man lame, begging money, and they raised him up. They gave him the ability to walk to leap, to run about. and It caused a great crowd to gather. And so, they're asked about this. In verse 10, he says, Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, how does that strike you? I understand in America, not everybody... I mean, we, most Americans, at least a few years ago, I would have said, they've heard this so much, they don't really think about it. But I guarantee you in the time of Jesus, there were people who took exception to that. You're telling me that's the only way that I can't go to heaven if I don't believe in Jesus? You go to plenty of countries today and you tell them the only way you go to India, where they have literally thousands of deities. You know, they, they narrowed the principal deities down somewhat, but there are literally thousands of deities. And you tell them the only way to heaven is through Jesus. In fact, you don't believe on the Son of God, the wrath of God abides on you. Increasingly in this country, you know, as we become a more diverse culture, 
and even outside of ethnic communities who come from other countries. Just the whole mindset of our country. Our coexist mentality increasingly sees Jesus. It sees the apostles as narrow-minded. Look at a few other passages with me. Look at Matthew the 7th chapter. Our, our word narrow is in this verse. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The, the way, he said, is narrow. The idea of narrow is not everybody fits into this. What does he say? Few going down this path. That's Jesus talking. If Jesus talked that way, how do you think his disciples are to talk? Keep going in the same chapter, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I want you to pay attention to these verses. These are not irreligious folks. These are folks who are saying, Lord. They're saying, Lord, we did this, we did that. In your name. And Jesus said, no, you still didn't get it. That's not enough. His way is so narrow that it's going to exclude even some religious people. In the fourth chapter of John, Jesus shows His compassion, His concern for people when He stops and He's sitting there at the well and He talks with a woman a lot of people would have disdained to talk with. In fact, when the disciples come back from town with the food and find Him talking to her, they're shocked. His love led Him to talk with her. But she asked a question in verse 20. Well, Technically, she didn't ask a question. She made a statement, but it implied the question. When she said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Is it Mount Gerizim up in Samaria? Is it Jerusalem? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is... Now watch this expression. When the true worshipers... Can I just stop right there? When the true worshipers... What does that imply? Doesn't it imply that there are false worshipers? There are those who are worshiping and it's not correct. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. True worshipers. God is seeking those who would practice worship in spirit and truth. That's the only way He says to do it. I look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And I think that if we just stop and think, this is incredibly narrow in its scope. There is one body and one spirit, 
Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. Seven times He says one. I'm not free to choose my God. I'm not free to choose my faith. People often say, what faith are you? There's only one faith that matters. That's the faith that God has revealed. The faith once for all delivered, Jude would say it. There's only one baptism. There's just one over and over again. The reality is, the New Testament, when you look at it, it is a book that has a very narrow scope. It, it, it just focuses in. The only way to the Father. Wrath of God if you don't. True worshipers. Enter by the narrow gate. But the reality is, that's the way truth is. Truth by its very nature, it excludes. Let me illustrate this with a very simple illustration. Two plus two. You know, you're in school. You know, lower school. Teacher writes this problem on the, I used to say chalkboard, whiteboard now maybe. You know, and then she calls on little Johnny to come up to the front and he takes the dry erase marker and he confidently puts a big old five up there. And the teacher shakes her head and says, No, Johnny, that's not right. Oh, I want to ask you something. What if Johnny just broke down and started crying and said, Oh, I just know it's five. You know, he's just so sincere about it that, I mean, it's just genuine. That's still not right. I'll tell you, what if Johnny could bring a note from his parents that said, hey, in our family, we believe that 2 plus 2 is 5. In fact, we can trace it back for generations that 2 plus 2 is 5. It's still not 5. And this is probably a little bit of a stretch for you. But what if little Johnny was kind of a smart aleck and he said to his teacher... You know, Miss Jones, do you know everything there is to know about advanced calculus? And she says, well, no, Johnny, I'm an elementary school teacher. I, I didn't focus on higher levels of math. Well, if you don't know everything there is to know about math, how can you be sure you know this? Okay, what happens? Well, while Johnny's on the way to the principal's office, you know, the teacher explains to the class that 2 plus 2 is 4. You ever think about how many answers don't fit? You know, how many answers are excluded? Two plus two is four. It's not five. It's not three. It's not 3.99. It's not 4.0000001. That's the way truth Truth excludes all these other things. And somebody said, well, I understand that. But you know... Everything's not like that. Some things are more subjective. Like, you know, is this person pretty, handsome, what it, you know, does this food? I mean, that's the truth. Some foods people like, people don't like. As I've said, with the exception of mint and chocolate in combination, I like about everything. 
I like mint. I like chocolate. Just don't put those two things together. By the way, trying, nobody so far served me chocolate mint ice cream. But, you know, I don't like that stuff. You know, but it's a subjective thing. I know that. But here, just to think about, it is still what it is. In our family, I eat rutabagas. You know, those orange tur- turnips on steroids. You know, I mean, that, those are great. I love them. They stink like everything when you cook them. Had some rutabagas today. I love them. But, you know, just imagine if it were the reverse. If my wife is the one that likes rutabagas, and I don't. And one day I come home now. Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the smell. But I can tell you, a rutabaga has a distinctive smell. You know, you know when it's being cooked. And I walk in the door, and I smell that smell. And I say, what's for dinner? And she says, I've, I've got fried chicken. Because I know that's one of your favorite foods. And it is. I say, okay. Because I believe it. But after a little while, that smell, and the fact that those big blowflies are gathering at the window, they'll do that, folks, I promise you. Yeah, I'm going, okay, i got to check this out. I go in the kitchen. I don't see the Dutch oven, you know, with the crystal oil. I see a pot with a lid on it. And I go over there, and I lift this up, and there are these orange vegetables simmering. And I say to her, what is this? She said, that's fried chicken. I said, no, those are rutabagas. She said, no, you don't like rutabagas, so from now on we call them fried chicken. And you like them. Well, you know, that's not going to work, is it? You may or you may not like a rutabaga. But a rutabaga is a rutabaga. Chocolate mint ice cream is chocolate mint ice cream. You could call it Rocky Road. I'd still hate it. You know, we laugh. But truth is truth. Things are what they are. And we understand that in life. We understand what the answer to 2 plus 2 is. We understand that once I have that answer, I know everything that's not the answer. I know what that food is. It's what it is. You may like it, you may not like it. That's what it is. Truth. It's what it is. And we need to accept that. Because the Bible has a lot to say about truth. Look at John the 8th chapter. I understand we live in a culture in which everything seems to be subjective. But that's not the Bible pattern. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed. We're talking true discipleship. You are My disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You want to be free? What will set you free? It's not your opinion, no matter how sincerely held. It's not your family tradition. I don't care how many generations back you can trace it. It's not some lie that somebody sells you. The only thing that will set you free, and you keep reading in this, he's talking about being free from sin is the truth. We need the truth. We need... Look at 1 Peter 1. I I really like the way it's said here for this point. He says in verse 22, he's writing to Christians. 
He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Truth is to be obeyed. If there are the revelation of God, He said you're to do what it says. You purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. You obey the truth. You take the incorruptible Word of God, and that's what you follow. The Word of God that lives and abides forever. Cultures change. The Word of God lives and abides. In James, the first chapter, in verse 18, he said, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth. Truth matters. The book of 3 John, it's probably one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. And John said to his one he called in verse 1, his beloved Gaius. He said, I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Do you see three times in two verses he says truth? And it, think about that expression, walking in truth. There's a, it's a path that's set for us. That path... It may not be what I was taught as a child. I can guarantee you, it won't be what you're hearing in general from the world around you. He said there's a path of truth. And that's what you've got to walk in. Walk in that truth. What we've got to be is not closed-minded people. But we've got to have a narrowness enough about us that we realize truth by its nature limits. Truth restricts. It, it confines one to a certain path, to a narrow gate, a narrow way. We've got to abide within truth. In John the 18th chapter though, a question is raised that I think is still being asked by many today. Jesus in John the 18th chapter has told Pilate, that yes, he's a king, but he said, my kingdom's not like what you're thinking. He said, my kingdom is about truth. I came, verse 37, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. People who care about truth listen to Jesus. And Pilate's answer was, what is truth? Now he asked the question and didn't allow Jesus to answer it. He walked away. But he said, what is truth? There was this skepticism, a cynicism in Pilate. The attitude of Pilate continues on today. A few years ago, I came across a quote from a man named David Wilhelm. At the time, he was very prominent in American politics. Very influential. And he gave an interview, and this, I took this from the Atlanta Journal, but he says, only God possesses absolute truth. None of us can declare other points of view as invalid or irreligious. From the depths of our conviction, we must remember the guideline, judge not, lest ye be judged. When you really, he says it, 
He says it well, but he's incorrect. What he's really saying is, we understand God up there knows truth, but we can't ever really know truth. And if I can't really know truth, you know, if I'm like that teacher that doesn't know everything about math, then I can't really say anything's wrong. That's the Spirit. There's truth in what He says, but you know, as they would say in the courtroom, the truth, the whole truth, it's not the whole truth. Look at this. God does possess truth, but He's conveyed it in His Word. In Psalm 119 and 151, He says, You are near, O Lord, and all Your commandments are truth. Is it only God who possesses absolute truth? Are those of us who have His commandments, do we also have truth? What was Jesus' prayer in John 17, 17? Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. And in John the 16th chapter, Jesus made a significant promise. John 14, 15, 16 is one great context about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is preparing to go to the cross that very, well, it will be the next day, but that night he'll be arrested. And he's telling the apostles, after I'm gone, the Spirit will come. He will bring to your remembrance, chapter 14, verse 26. But chapter 16, verse 13, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, that's what he calls the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth has come He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak and He will tell you things to come. The Spirit of truth would guide into all truth. When somebody says, well, we can't know truth, why not? Jesus promised. He promised a group of men that lived nearly 2,000 years ago that they would be guided into all truth that they would have what they needed. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He says that. There's a purpose. There's a reason the Scripture, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book will do what we need. That statement that you know none of us can declare other points of view as invalid or irreligious because after all, only God has truth. No, God has shared that truth. Truth does not, it cannot originate with me or with you. But we can know truth. In Ephesians, the third chapter, I want you, you kind of you put this together with what was said in John the 16th chapter about the Spirit coming to guide them into all truth. Look at verse 3. Paul writes out that by revelation, He made known to me the mystery. He made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Can I tie John 16, 13 to this? He called it the Spirit of truth there. 
And he says, and let's start at the end of that. Revealed by the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to the apostles and prophets. So here you have it. You've got the Holy Spirit who's revealing it to the apostles and prophets. What does Paul say I've done here? He said, I've written it. That you might do what? That you might read it. And when you read it, what? That you might understand. Look at that. I've written, verse 3. Well, what's he written? Well, he's written, verse according to verse 5, what was revealed by the Spirit. By writing it, what could happen? Verse 4, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. We are capable of knowing truth because our God has chosen to reveal truth. He's chosen to reveal truth in a way that we can understand. Are we narrow-minded? Are we... Is there something wrong when we say, folks, we've got to follow this book. We've got to follow this book closely. And we've got to reject everything that's outside the Word of God. There are people that will say, oh, it's fine for you to believe that, but, but don't question what I do. Well, I don't question what anybody does because well, I'm mad at them. Because I don't like them. I don't think they're as smart as me. But I feel obligated to try to point people to the truth of God. Because he says, it's the truth that will make you free. If somebody's not following the truth, they're not abiding in truth, walking in truth, why shouldn't I seek to point them to the truth? Why shouldn't I challenge what they believe? This is not in any way a call for anybody to be arrogant, to be filled with pride, to be smart aleck. You know, in, in what I was talking earlier about the nature of truth, you know, we can laugh about the two plus two and the little Johnny and the rutabagas. I'm not laughing at anybody's beliefs. You know, I'm just, we understand truth at that level. Let's understand it when it comes to what really matters most. And let's understand it's not about sincerity. One of, to me, one of the best illustrations in the Bible is that of Jacob. Do you know the story of Jacob, Genesis 37, when his favorite son has been sold off into Egypt and they brought back the coat of his son dipped in the blood? And they go, could this be your son's coat? You know, they they just like, you know, we're, we're, we're not sure. You know, they've taken it off of him, dip it in blood. You know, you think this might belong to Joseph? And Jacob was distraught. And Jacob said, he surely is torn by the wild animals. He said, I'll go to my grave in mourning. Where's Joseph? Right then, he was in a caravan headed to Egypt. You know, Joe, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, had once mounted a rescue effort for his nephew Lot and saved him. I suspect Jacob had done the same thing. Except Jacob was sincerely convinced his son was dead. But his son was alive. Sincerity didn't kill him. What we need, folks, is a commitment to truth. 
Sometimes people ask me, so what does the Church of Christ believe on this or that? It doesn't really matter, does it? The truth is, I, I, you can take about any subject, I can find a Church of Christ that will teach about anything on it. You know, that may teach different. What matters is what Jesus says about it. The East Side Church of Christ better be committed to what Jesus said. We're talking about being true disciples. We're talking about not saying, well, what is church of no, we're talking about? I'm going to follow Jesus' word. You know, Jesus in Matthew the 15th chapter talked about the doctrines of men. Yeah. They're the commandments of God, they're the doctrines of men. That's what we want to be committed to. I want to challenge you to be true disciples. True disciples who love truth, who are searching for truth, who are committed to truth. When they find truth, they hold to that truth. They defend that truth. They, in love, point out that which is contrary to truth. That's what true disciples do. I want to share with you a few illustrations of how, on a practical level, Truth is narrow. Some of you have probably seen me do this before. I know my wife has. Um, but this is the best I can do on a projector, an approach I use sometimes in studying with people sitting at the table together. I like legal pads. You know, you know do legal people use legal pads? I don't know anymore. But, you know, I like legal pads. I, I go through a lot of them in a year. But I like, I draw a box. You know, I've set it up. We talk about truth. We talk about truth is confining. It's restricting. It's excluding. And then we, we start talking about a question like this. Who should be baptized? How do we determine that? Do we take a vote? You know, I, I, believe, I believe in infant baptism. Well, I, I don't believe in infant baptism. All, all infant, no, we don't do it that way. You know, we don't go back to tradition. We just go to the Bible. You know, there are more than a hundred references to baptism in the New Testament. That's where you find your answer. Now, you start reading those, and you will find that not all of them provide any help. You know, you'll go through and you'll read a passage on baptism, and you go, well, that doesn't tell me much about who should be baptized. But you get to Matthew, the 28th chapter, in verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I see here that those being baptized are those who can follow Jesus. A disciple is a student, an imitator, a follower. That tells me something. I come to Mark the 16th chapter. In verse 15, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. If I'm doing this at the table with somebody, I say, Don't you think right here maybe we ought to write in our box? Baptism is for believers. Because He says, He who believes and is baptized. I keep going and I come to Acts the second chapter, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
See, here's something that goes with baptism is repentance. The Bible actually never gives an age for baptism. It never speaks directly to something about age. But what it does is it connects qualities with baptism that you know just aren't for infants. Babies can't be disciples. Babies can't believe. Babies can't repent. You know where I put infant baptism? I put it outside the box. I put it outside the realm of truth. Why? Well, because that's what the church of Christ doesn't know. The, The reality is, on this one subject, if I were to survey the whole religious world, well, let's say everyone who claims faith in Christ in this world, I would find, I believe, that the majority would defend infant baptism. When you take Roman Catholicism, you take all the Orthodox churches, Greek, Roman, uh, Russian, various Orthodox churches, when you take the Anglican and the Presbyterian and the Episcopalian and the Methodist, I think that probably totals up to a majority. But what does that mean? All that means is a lot of people believe in it and then a lot of people don't. You know, I don't, take, I, don't, I don't ever want to take a position because everybody believes it. Or I, I want to be the, you know, the contrary guy and I want to take the position that hardly anybody believes. No. I just want to look at the Scripture. The reason I exclude infant baptism is when I search in the truth, I read about believers, disciples, penitent people. That, to be penitent is to be able to change one's way of thinking. That's not everybody. What about the very act of baptism? You know, there are people who baptize by sprinkling, by pouring, by immersion. What ought to be? Well, I'll tell you, you start going through the Scriptures, you'll find a lot of them that just don't tell you anything about it. It just simply says they baptized. But you're coming along and you can come to John, the third chapter, verse 23. If you're reading... And the way you would do this is you just start at the beginning. And you just read and you go, well... You know, that, that passage didn't tell me anything. And then you come to John 3.23. It says, Now John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. And I suddenly I see a statement that says he chose this location because there was much water there. Well, I think if I'm searching for how to baptize, I've got to at least think that may be a factor. I'm going to put that down. I keep going. And again, like in Acts the second chapter, he says, repent and be baptized. That doesn't really tell me anything about how. But I come to the eighth chapter of Acts. Verse 36. Philip is talking to this man of Ethiopia and he says, they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now he's talking to this man who is a high government official. What does this man do? Does this man send a servant to that water to bring some water back to him? Does Philip go fetch some? Do they take maybe some water they had on the wagon, the chariot with them? No. Verse 38, So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. 
Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. What did we just read? They went to the water, into the water, up out of the water. Are we seeing a picture here? In Romans the 6th chapter, in verse 4, and I could also turn to Colossians 2.12, he says, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. We're buried. The reality is the picture the New Testament paints. They baptize where there was much water. They go down to the water, into the water, up out of the water. They're buried in baptism. The New Testament tells us baptism is immersion. Sprinkling. Pouring of water. I put those outside. Why? Again, it's not because I don't like that. You know, it, it would be simpler. At times it would be far more convenient. But it's just not what I find in the truth. If I'm committed to searching the truth, if I'm committed to abiding, walking in truth, the picture that's been painted there is of people who go down into the water. It's of people who are buried in baptism. It's where there's much water. That's why I don't sprinkle, I don't pour. It's certainly not because I don't like the people that do that. No, not at all. One last one I want to share with you has to do with salvation. How do we. How, is there a greater question to be asked? Then what must I do to be saved? If I'm going through the New Testament, I will tell you this, when I read in Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. I know I'm putting that down. You know, in my, you know and I, I've got that pad, and I'm, we're sitting there with a pen, I say, don't you think we ought to write that in there? He's the author of eternal salvation to those that obey Him. And then we just keep going. And we read passages like Romans the 10th chapter in verses 9 and 10 where he says, for with the heart, or verse 9, I'm sorry, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I believe if I want to be saved, he says, I'm going to have to believe in my heart. I'm going to have to confess with my mouth. I read in Acts, or Mark the 16th chapter, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Acts 2.38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I read in Acts 22.16, He's speaking to a man. This is a great story. Start, Acts 9 tells it first. Acts 22 tells it again with some a few different details. Acts 26 relates it a third time. Well, again, with some different details. But Jesus, Jesus had appeared to Paul. At the time, he was called Saul. Appeared to him and told him to go into the city of Damascus. He said, there you'll be told what to do. Three days he waited to know what to do. Three days it says he fasted. Three days it says he prayed. 
And then a man named Ananias came to him and said, Why are you waiting? Verse 16 of Acts 22. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, here I've got a man, a sinner who's been praying for three days. And he's told, you need to be baptized to wash away your sins. What's the picture of salvation? There are a lot of people that will tell you, you'll be saved by faith only. There are people who will tell you, you'll be prayed by praying the sinner's, saved by praying the sinner's prayer. There are a lot of folks that just ridicule the necessity of baptism. They'll say things like, oh, the power is in the blood and not the baptistry. I don't believe in water salvation. Let me tell you, I don't believe in water salvation. I believe Jesus is the author of eternal salvation, though, to those that obey Him. I believe Jesus Himself said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. I believe Jesus appeared to Saul and said, You go to the city and you'll be told what to do. And what was He told to do? He was told to arise and be baptized and wash away His sins. Salvation by faith only. I can't put it inside the box of truth. Because I don't find the New Testament. The New Testament says we're saved by faith. But it never says by faith only. It's that faith that will confess with the mouth. It's that faith that will lead one to turn from his sins. It's the faith that will lead one to be baptized into Christ. To be buried with Him in baptism. That's the faith that will save. This church, the East Side Church of Christ, may teach that doctrine, but it's not the Church of Christ doctrine. It's the Bible. This group of people, I hope you are committed to true discipleship. True discipleship means you do what Jesus says. That's His plan. That's what He's revealed. You know, we could draw more boxes and talk about more subjects. The point is, we abide in truth whatever the issue is. Hold to the truth. Reject error. I want you to be open-minded to learning. 1 John 4 verse 1 says something very sober. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What's in the box, as it were, is a whole lot smaller than what's outside of it. You're going to have to test it. You're going to have to search. Oh, there are people that won't like it. I mean, this is our coexist world we live in. And I want you to love everyone. I want you to be patient with everyone. I want us to speak words with kindness. But I want us to understand it's the truth that will make us free. We're called upon to oppose error. To be against it. We need to listen to God's truth. We need to act on God's truth. In just a second, we're going to sing a song. A song chosen just to provide an opportunity for your encouragement. For you to do what needs to be done in your life. If you've never arisen to be baptized and wash away your sins... All you have to do is while we're singing this song, you just step forward and let us know. And we will help you with that.
If we can help you, you come while we stand, while we sing together. Troublesome times are here, filling its hearts with fear. Freedom, we all did. Come make your heart.